So uh, if you're um, new with us, or just as a reminder for anybody, we've been studying through the uh, uh, book of Jeremiah, been uh, doing it for a while now, and a few things that are important for uh, today's teaching as we think about um, this, this particular portion of Jeremiah. Number one is this, Jeremiah is not a chronological book. Right? It is not a chronological book. Jeremiah is a book that's composed of books. And uh, so it, it's set up more thematically than it is chronologically. So it, it, um, it weaves and, and moves in certain um, voices and in certain proclamations that if you're, not, if you're not aware of the fact that it's not chronological, it seems weird. And in chapter 9, he's talking about uh, Zedekiah. And in chapter 16, he's talking about Jehoiachin. And in chapter 33, he's talking about Zedekiah again. And Jehoiachin came before Zedekiah. But that's the whole point, is that it's not about the chronology as much as it is the themes and the content. All right, the content, the, the, the book moves thematically, um, and it moves according to particularly emotion, right? So how, how Jeremiah is feeling in a given situation, those emotions tend to be grouped together. Jeremiah is known as what kind of prophet? A weeping prophet. That's right, we have that illustrated in one of our pieces of art up here. Um, Jeremiah weeping over God's city, Jeremiah weeping over God's land. Um, Jeremiah is a, is a, uh, um, a prophet who is called to speak to a people who don't want to actually hear what he has to say. Uh, he's a prophet who has been called uh, by the Lord to be a, a spokesman for God to God's people. And the picture here is very important. And this is something of a, um, it's not a disclaimer per se, as much as, um, I mean, you should just, t- today's sermon is a tough word. I'm, I'll just be right up front with you. This is a, this is a hard word to preach, and this is a hard word to receive. And here's the thing, is, um, is that it, this, is, this picture is the important one to keep in your mind. Um, today's word is so hard, it's the kind of word that you want to dumb down. It's the kind of word that you want to be like, oh, God's talking really mean here, but don't forget he's a loving dad. So he's just like, wants his kids to be really uh, um, healthy and well. That is not the picture of Jeremiah. God is not expressed as a father in Jeremiah. God is expressed as a husband who is getting cheated on. What's the difference in emotion between a father disciplining their kid for the hundredth time for the exact same thing and a husband getting cheated on? Huge, right? Huge difference in emotion. Huge difference. And the biggest difference is that a child, um, you know, I mean, hear this for the, the way that I mean it. Like, on some levels, a, a child is supposed to repeatedly disobey. That's how they learn, right? That, 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 that's called discipline, nurture, training. Like, don't do that. And then they do that. No, remember this? Like, I said not to do this. Here's the consequence for having done that. Uh, and then they do it again, and then they do it again, and then they do it again. Um, and, and as a parent, your job is to stay in it, right? Your job is to, like, be really present and engaged and let your emotions be real, but also be measured and remember uh, who's the kid in the situation and who's the parent. Um, um, when a spouse, um, when there's adultery in a relationship, that's very, very different, right? I mean, who here, and there are people in this room who have experienced infidelity. I understand that um, and don't want to be calloused toward that at all. But th- there is none of us in here who, if our spouse were to um, cheat on us or someone else, would be like, oh, that's all right. Let's just try again. Like, let's just try again. We'll, we'll, we'll get it. Like, let's be real about this. 
that, that's the hard part about this. I, every fiber of, not every fiber, I have some fibers that aren't. <laughs> a lot of my being today wants to make this about like the father side of things, but I would be um, uh, without integrity with the text if I were to do that. So um, it's important that I just want to preface that what's going to be coming, it's going to be, it's going to be this is going to be a hard word for us today. Um, the judgment for both spiritual adultery and for sin against a, a father is all the same um, in that it's been put on Christ in the cross. And I don't mean that as a disclaimer. I, I just mean to say that um, because Christ has received our judgment, then um, we stand as people who uh, um, engage God in different ways than our uh, fathers and sisters and brothers and mothers in the faith did back in Jeremiah's day. However, the emotions of God are the exact same. The, the emotions of God are the exact same. The church is the bride of Christ. When the church sleeps with other lovers, do you think his emotion is any different? So just as, as, as we think about this today, it's important to stay in that vein and to, to remain in that mode. We are not talking about a father disciplining kids. We are talking about a husband who is being cheated on. And, and, and the emotional context in that is, is, is very, very different. And uh, the way that we engage it um, can be very, very different. I do think that there is some points that we can see. Um, uh, God's deep patience uh, you know, is, is very clear. The book of Hosea, we can read that, which is a point, another uh, story of spiritual adultery. Uh, Ezekiel 16, another point of spiritual adultery. We can see spiritual adultery throughout the scriptures in various different places. Um, and God truly is patient, and he truly is loving, and he truly is engaged, and he does chase her out into the wilderness, and he does bring her back to himself with gentility and kindness. Um, uh, and there is also, within God, the rage component of this hurts so much. I cannot believe that this is happening again, um, that this has to stop. And I will create a situation whereby it stops. We call that exile. Right? Exile is not divorce. Right? God does not divorce his bride. Furthermore, God does not send his bride into exile. She sends herself into exile. This is her choice. Those are her idols that she willingly went to and engaged, right? God does not shame his children. Sin shames God's children. It's our sin that, that shames us, right? Sin has, con- a lot of what we're going to talk about today is spiritual math, where one plus one does actually equal two. It's just that we want to make one plus one equal four so that we can um, think differently about ourselves than what God thinks. But what I'm going to suggest today is that we try and think about ourselves and him and this whole dynamic in a, in a different way. Everybody got that? that that's, my, that's my introductory, like, uh, uh, not disclaimer, but things to be aware of. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, who we are in you. We bless you, and um, we want to receive the fullness of who you are, God, and we desire to be faithful. Um, as you are faithful, and we desire to know you as, um, as you know us, like with that kind of intimacy, with that kind of awareness, with that kind of depth of love and of engagement. And so, God, would you um, come into this place and speak your words to us today? Um, and uh, we want to receive uh, everything that's from you, and anything that's not from you, we don't want to receive. Um, and so we uh, open ourselves to the Holy Spirit and to the wisdom of Christ in our midst and look to see you increase our 
depth of knowledge and love and goodness um, with you and in you today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Jeremiah chapter 23, um, uh, Jeremiah 23 is, is a concept that we start to see happening in Jeremiah, in the book of Jeremiah, an experience that Jeremiah has that then is also picked up on in chapters 28 through 30. So we're going to do um, a very quick exposition of Jeremiah 23 and 28 through 30 um, in just seeing the story of what it is that Jeremiah is, um, is engaging. So the, the topic and the concept that Jeremiah is stepping into and is being confronted with in this portion of the story is the idea of false prophecy. It's the idea of false prophecy. Jeremiah is a true prophet of the Lord. He's truly called by God to deliver God's message and to deliver God's words to the people. Um, there are also false prophets who are bringing messages that are not from the Lord to God's people. And Jeremiah is, obviously this produces this major point of conflict um, between what will be the true word of God and what will be the false word of God. And uh, you might say, how do you know one from the other? We'll get there. Um, but it's important to remember um, what it is that we know about false prophets. All right, when we know about false prophets. Jesus said it best, in, in my opinion, um, in his sermon on the mount. Uh, Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep clothing, sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. All right, let's read this together out loud. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. The idea of uh, prophecy is simply what I, I just said. A prophet's job is to receive the word of the Lord and speak the word of the Lord. Uh, a prophet receives and speaks the word of the Lord. False prophet is someone who speaks their own words, who has not received something from God, but speaks as though God had spoken. Um, and false prophets, uh, because a prophet, um, particularly in uh, the Old Testament, we see it, um, you know, like there's not, there's not a text to go to. Um, I mean, there, there's Torah that's housed um, in, uh, in various places throughout this uh, um, nation of Israel. However, prophets were deeply relied upon to bring God's counsel. And particularly, the major dynamic and relationship that you see in the scriptures, prophets didn't just walk around uh, the nation of Israel just yelling at people. Right? Um, a, a prophet generally waited to be called upon. We see that as, as a general rhythm, uh, uh, waited to be called upon, unless sent by God. But the majority of the time that we see a prophet engaging, it's going to be with a person who's in a place of power, um, oftentimes and usually with a king. It, it's a common way that that, that government worked in the Old Testament. A king doesn't know what to do, so a king calls for the prophet. The prophet hears God's word, brings the word back to the king. 100% of the time in the Old Testament, when the king followed the prophet's word, the king had success. When the king did not, the king had some kind of massive failure, lost himself, lost his kingdom, died in battle, um, all kinds of crazy things happened. And, and so this dynamic that happens is, is very, very important. Jeremiah, um, from a historical standpoint, Jeremiah's life spans five different kings, pretty much. Uh, five different kings. And on some level, um, Jeremiah is called to all of them, um, except for the first one. So Jeremiah would have been born during the reign of King Josiah. What do we know about King Josiah? What's weird about him? What's that? He was very young. That's right. Josiah started the reign when he was eight years old. Right? Eight years old. And um, he had his... Uh, uh, he, he, he did not have good counselors either, which is interesting. His father, Ammon, was a horrible king. 
whose father before him, Manasseh, was an even worser king. Uh, and yeah, that, that means really, really bad. Like the worstest worser. Um, uh, and, and Ammon just, I mean, just, he was, uh, I mean, just, yeah, really, really bad without getting into it. Um, Josiah sort of like comes out of nowhere. And it's this, this childlike faith on some level that reaches out for the word of God. They started to rebuild the temple and they found these scrolls in the basement that would have been covered up for, for years and years, and they proclaimed the word of the Lord, and an actual revival starts to break out in Israel. And this is what Jeremiah is growing up in. Right, Jeremiah's formative early years would have been during the reign of Josiah. Josiah w- sparked a, a national revival. Now, Josiah didn't stay faithful to the end. Josiah did not finish well. But that first half of his reign um, was a time of significant spiritual revival and prosperity in, in Israel. Jeremiah would have experienced that. Right? Jeremiah would have experienced that. Egypt started to invade from the south, so Josiah took his army to the south to guard the border, and Josiah died in battle at that point in time. Um, so Josiah then um, uh, was off the scene, and Jehoahaz came on the scene. Now Jehoahaz was pretty much the exact opposite of Josiah. And before Josiah, remember, there had just been this massive lineage of, 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 of not good kings. Every once in a while, there's this, yeah, uh, this person was godly, or this person ruled in the fear of the Lord, but not, not very often. Um, better than the nation of Israel in the north did, though. They, they didn't have anything. Um, but uh, Jehoahaz gets on the scene, and Jehoahaz, the Bible describes him as evil, and he only reigns for like four months um, before uh, he's just summarily uh, dismissed with death. Um, and then Jehoiakim comes on the scene. Jehoiakim is not just um, evil, but he's evil in a really nasty way. Like he, he, he sort of like indirectly oppresses the people, massive amounts of taxes, um, massive amounts of oppression, and it, it's this really ugly thing. So it's, it's not, not just that he's worshiping idols, but it's also that he's being oppressive to the people, injustice to the people, which God just hates when his kings do that. So Jehoiakim um, is someone else that we see Jeremiah speaking against. Jehoiachin uh, also reigns for four months before he's carried off to Babylon. So during this, during this national revival under the role of Josiah, there are these two major world powers that are happening. Uh, and I'll go like this for you. There's Assyria who's in the north of Israel. Israel's down here. Babylon's over here. Assyria came in, carried the uh, northern ten tribes off to Assyria. In the meantime, Babylon is uh, growing in power. And, uh, and, and as Babylon grows in power, Assyria begins to become divided from within, and Assyria falls. Babylon conquers Assyria and then begins to look south, and God opens the door for that to happen because of this uh, major lineage of evil kings with sort of like Josiah thrust in there. And um, so evil kings, Josiah, and then back to evil kings. And Jeremiah is in this spot of growing up during this national revival and then being called to speak the word of the Lord to these kings who only worship idols, who do not want to follow the Lord. Not only that, but he also is called then to speak to the priests. The priests also begin to worship false gods. So that the very people who are meant to lead the people to Jehovah actually are leading them away. It, it, it is, this is ugly stuff. And all this under the watch of these evil kings, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, Jehoahaz. Uh, the last one is Zedekiah. Zedekiah is set up as something of like a puppet regime because um, while, while everything else is happening with Jehoiachin, uh, Babylon comes in, conquers Assyria, and then begins to threaten Israel. Israel's like, ah, we don't want to. Uh, please don't come in and take us over. So they set up a, 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 uh, like a vassal system where the king actually reports to Babylon. 
And Zedekiah reports to Babylon and sends tribute to Babylon and all of those things. Uh, Zedekiah, we see Jeremiah rail against him on many occasions. Zedekiah helped Jeremiah out a couple of times, but for the most part, Zedekiah was not a a, a strong God follower. Um, And we see Jeremiah prophesy against him as well. Zedekiah doesn't send enough tribute, doesn't stay faithful to his role as the puppet king for Babylon. Babylon comes in with all of their forces and just wipes Israel out. All right, just destroys Jerusalem, destroys the city. It's awful. And then you read the book of Lamentations. And that's what Jeremiah, uh, that's what Jeremiah's prophetic um, word is encompassing, is all of those different things. To say that it was bad is like an understatement of the year. This, this was bad. This was, this was really, really, really offensive to the Lord and offensive to the identity of what it meant for these people to be called the followers of Yahweh, to be called God's children, to be called, on some level, God's bride. Um, but the people of God kept going back to idols over and over and over again, and the king kept empowering the idolatry over and over and over again. And here's Jeremiah standing as a faithful word of the Lord saying, you don't understand what's going on. Like you, 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 you are willfully turning against God. You are, God is going to judge us. God is going to send us away. God is going to bring Babylon in. God is going to raise this city. God is going to, to destroy this national identity. God is going to judge his priests. God is going to judge his kings. God is going to judge his people. And this is going to happen. And we need to receive that and respond to God the way that, because he's faithful to us, even though we've been unfaithful to him. And even though we break his, our promises toward him, he does not break his promises toward us. But God will have a people who follow him. God will not allow his bride to run around on him. He will find her. He will bring her back. And he will, th- th- this, this marriage will work. <laughs> like it, it, it will be made right. Those are, that's a hard word. Those are all hard words. We, we're, we're idolatrous. God is angry with us. God is going to send us into exile. He's going to send us into judgment. We're going to be taken over by a foreign power. And it's, gonna, it's not going to be quick. It's not going to be easy. This is going to be tough. This is going to be hard. Repent. Turn. Let's get back to God. And over and over and over again, we say kings saying no to that. So in the midst of all of this, in the midst of Jeremiah's prophetic word and consistent word that we've looked at for a number of months now, and you folks have seen all that, there come these other false prophet voices, these other ways and things of thinking about what's happening. People coming in saying, it's not that bad. It's not that bad, really. I mean, everything's fine. It It might be rough for a couple years. But all in all, like, just put your head down. We can get through this. And then we can just rebuild and be the great, grand, glorious place that we've always been. That, that was not Jeremiah's word. Right? Jeremiah's word is repent, turn. God is angry. God will have justice. This thing will be made right. We cannot worship idols. Exile is coming. Submit to the exile and walk into it. The false prophets begin to say something else. But what they say is a whole lot nicer than what Jeremiah has to say. Isn't that some? I tell you what, folks, if you don't like what I'm saying right now, just... Go home and look at YouTube. You know, you'll find all kinds of stuff on there that make you feel better. 
right? I mean, just, it, it's, it's one of these, it's sort of like, where do, I, where do I find my audience? Where do I pick and choose from? What do I want to hear? What do I not want to hear? The nation of Israel did not want to hear what Jeremiah had to say. The kings did not want to hear what Jeremiah had to say. So the question is, well, then where is something that I do want to hear? But then Jeremiah would say, but that's not real. It's not true. Yeah, but it's a heck of a lot better than what you're saying. But it's not real, but it's not true. Yeah, but I don't like what you're saying. What you're saying feels bad. But it's not real. It's not true. I think that we deal with these kinds of things a lot in our lives. The New New Testament says that people will arise wanting to have their ears tickled. That, 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 That there will be times that are coming when people don't want to hear the truth. Where they have a form of godliness but deny the power that's actually resident in it. Because it's not true. Because it's not real. There's a, 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 my, one of my favorite pop culture pictures and allegories is uh, the movie The Matrix. Um, we're going to watch a clip from that. Um, to set this clip up, this clip you're about to see, the, the metaphor in this clip is food. Right? So watch the way that food is talked about and engaged in, in this clip. Um, up until this point, if you haven't seen The Matrix, hey, just leave right now and go see The Matrix. Um, it, it's... Great, great stuff. It's, a, it's, a, it's this uh, really interesting allegory. It has a lot of different things to say, both about uh, Christianity and Marxism, um, depending what perspective you want and who you like to read. Um, I like to read the person I agree with because, you know, I'm into false prophets. Um, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Um, in this clip, in this clip, uh, you're going to see, first off, there's two scenes. One is a scene with um, Agent Smith, who's sort of like the personification of evil, and this other guy named Cypher. Right? And they're sitting at this beautiful, elegant dinner. And Cypher is a traitor. He's a traitor to the real cause. Because the place that they're in right now is fake. It's completely not real. It's the matrix. It's, it's, the, it's the world that's been pulled over the eyes of people to make them think that they're just living in a nice, comfortable bubble of goodness and good food. Um, but it, but in, 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 uh, in the long run, what's actually happening is everyone is just simply plugged into a, a machine, and they're feeding machines, and machines are eating people. Um, but Cypher, he doesn't want that reality anymore, even though that's reality. Like, he wants to get unplugged. He wants to, get, he wants to leave what's real and come back to what's false because what's real is just too darn hard. Second scene is reality. Right? Second scene is, is, is a different take on what's real. And food is this metaphor for which do we choose? What, what do we want? What is it that we actually desire? So, um, yeah, we're going to watch this thing now. You guys good? Oops, sorry, Justin. Do we have a deal, Mr. Reagan? You know, I know this steak doesn't exist. I know that when I put it in my mouth, the Matrix is telling my brain that it is juicy and delicious. After nine years, you know what I realize? (sighs) Ignorance is bliss. Then we have a deal. I don't want to remember nothing. 
nothing. You understand? And I want to be rich. You know, someone important. Like an actor. Whatever you want, Mr. Regan. Okay. Get my body back in a power plant. Reinsert me into the Matrix. I'll get you what you want. Access codes to the Zion mainframe. No, I told you I don't know them. I can get you the man who does. Morpheus. Here you go, buddy. Breakfast of champions. If you close your eyes, it almost feels like you're eating runny eggs. Yeah, a bowl of snot. Do you know what it really reminds me of? Tasty wheat. Did you ever eat tasty wheat? No, but technically neither did you. Well, that's exactly my point. Exactly. Because you have to wonder now. How do the machines really know what tasty wheat tasted like, huh? Maybe they got it wrong. Maybe what I think tasty wheat tasted like actually tasted like uh, oatmeal or, uh, or tuna fish. That makes you wonder about a lot of things. Uh, you, you take chicken, for example, maybe they couldn't figure out what to make chicken taste like, which is why chicken tastes like everything. Uh, maybe they could figure out. Now. It's a single-celled protein combined with synthetic aminos, vitamins, and minerals. Everything the body needs. It doesn't have everything the body needs. God is truth. Whatever is true is always best. God is truth. Whatever is true is always best. Would you rather eating the nastiness but actually be alive and real? Or just have a dream world pulled over your eyes and be being fed to the machine? Right, and you can take that spiritual allegory as far as you'd like to. I mean, what's the machine that we oftentimes have pulled over our eyes? And to what degree is God trying to break through with truth, but we don't like what it is that he has to say? And so we look for something else. But that something else, if it's not truth, isn't God. Right? And if it's not God, then why do we want it? And if it is God, then why don't we want it? And the answer is oftentimes because it's really complicated for us. Like it, it affects our lives in really deep and strong ways. Because some of the things that God has to say are not the warm, fuzzy type of things that we like to um, get used to. In Jeremiah 23, you can see a lot of this. Because what's happening is, is these other false prophets are coming to the nation of Israel and, and they are contradicting God's message through Jeremiah. Jeremiah is saying, this is going to be judgment. This is going to be long. This is going to be hard. The false prophets are going, ah, it's not going to be that bad. It'll, it'll be tough for a little while. We'll go through some bumps and some scrapes here and there. But I mean, after a while, everything will be okay. Everything will be okay. Um, God is horrifically displeased with you. No, not really. Not really. Um, I mean, God has certain things that he wants to say. And, you know, what you think is God's, burdening God's heart is one thing, but what I think is burdening God's heart is another thing. And so this is 
This is God's burden. This is what's on his heart. In Jeremiah 23, you can see all this come together, uh, where Jeremiah says in verse 16, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, It shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, No disaster shall come upon you. This is a nation who is actively worshiping idols. This is a people who are actively, actively cheating on God, who are committing active spiritual adultery, who are, who are walking in just blatant unrighteousness and a loss of their identity for who they are as the people of God. That comes with consequences. When we, when we choose that thing, we do the same thing. When, when we choose that, that has consequences. What we want to say is everything's good. Everything's okay. Everything's not okay. Everything's not okay. What's truth is what's most important. If what's truth is that I am deeply caught in a trap and a snare of sin, and this is a situation that I made for myself, <laughs> that's the best thing that I can know because that's what's real. I can create my own little bubbles of 68-degree climate and niceness and goodness and warmth and comfort and luxury. That doesn't change the fact about what's actually true. But what's actually true is oftentimes difficult to hear. And we would rather hear something else. God says in verse 23, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? Do I not fill the heaven and the earth? I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart, who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams, that they tell one another, even as their fathers forgot my name for a bail? Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from one another. Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against those who prophesy lying dreams, declares the Lord, and who tells them and who tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness when I did not send them or charge them. So they do not profit this people at all, declares the Lord. Time and time again, we see God saying that what is real is actually what is best. That the things that you think that you know, the dreams that you've had are the dreams that you've had. In reality, though, what it is that God has put in place and what God has spoken is what is most foundationally important. And to leave this in order to have that because it makes you feel better about your situation is a cost that you can't afford because God's not there. Wherever God is is where we should want to be. God is truth, and his truth can be hard for us to receive. But where else would we rather be? Would you rather be hooked up to the machine and living a luxury life of lies? Or, yeah, eating the slop, but knowing that your life is actually counting for something. Knowing that you're actually living in a reality that's real. I think that's an honest question for a lot of us. 
Because I think a lot of us just want like nice Christianity. I, I think we like we just want like, like you, what we want when it comes down to it. I think is for God to be our therapist. We want to set up an appointment with God once a week, pay our fee, sit on a nice couch, and tell Him all of our problems, and have Him shut up and listen. And at the end, give us five minutes of good advice that we may or may not take when we leave. But it doesn't really matter because I paid my fee. Moral, being good. Therapeutic, making you feel good. Deism, a God who is far away and disconnected. That's That's what many of us have been fed. And we call it Christianity. Moral, therapeutic, deism. God says, I am not a deist. (laughs) I am not far off. I did not just start this thing moving and then back away to see what would happen in the long run. And that's how he starts that passage in verse 23. I am not a God who's fine. I'm right here. I'm right here. You think you're getting away with something? You are not. I'm right here. I'm watching this happen. I'm watching you prostitute yourself, he says in Ezekiel 16. I, I, I am observing this and I am feeling it deeply and I will not have it because I love you that much, right? Because that's the thing about truth. It's that like truth can be so hard. I don't want to hear what's negative about myself, but where there is not truth, there is not God. Where there is not God, there is not love. And so just because you feel good and luxurious about something, just because the taste, just because the steak tastes juicy and delicious doesn't mean that the presence of God is in that place. God is every bit as much in his word of judgment as he is in his word of love. In fact, his word of judgment is his word of love. This is God we're talking about. There is always grace in judgment. This is who he is. God is not capricious. He is not whimsical. He does not lose his temper. When he gets angry, it is with purpose. (laughs) When he gets angry, it is is real. His his words of harshness and, and, and the reality that he brings is for the purpose of judgment. Judgment means to separate. So it's to take what shouldn't be there and to take that out and away. And so when we give ourselves to other lesser lovers, like that, that's not love. And we, won't, we aren't being loved. We're actually being used then. We're being hurt. We're being destroyed. And God says, I cannot have that. You're my bride. I'm not going to let you run off and hurt yourself. I'm not going to let you leave my love because my love is what's best for you. So I separate you from that. The separation is painful. That's hard. That hurts because we love these things. These idols, they become a part of our identity. They become a part of the way that we grew up. They're, they're a part of where we came from, our wounds. We, we, we oftentimes love our wounds. We define ourselves by our wounds. And God says, I want to separate that. I want to judge that. That's not you. Your sin's not you. Your past is not you. Your history is not you. That's not where you come from. And that's certainly not where you're going. But we're saying, but God, I've gotten used to this. I like this. I know who I am in this. And God is saying, you cannot find love there. In fact, not just can you not find love there, but that thing will eat you alive and they'll eat your kids. That's what idols do. So when a false prophet comes waltzing in saying, everything's good, it's just just a little bit, God's got a little upset. No, 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 no. If God is raging, then we receive it. If God is judging, then we invite his separation. That's what the psalmist says. Search me and know me, God. See if there is any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. 
to keep the food analogy going, look at the next, look at your heading for the next chapter, verse 24. What do you see? What does it say? The good and bad, what, what is it? Figs. That's right. The good and bad figs. Uh, remember, we started today's sermon with uh, that word from Jesus in Matthew 7. And um, where Jesus says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. And then he continues, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or are figs from thistles? Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you recognize them by their fruits. Jesus doesn't make up this picture, folks. He just read the Old Testament. He just knew Jeremiah. He sees false prophecy being talked about in Jeremiah chapter 23, and then Jeremiah immediately moves into this concept of good prophecy is good figs. False prophecy is bad figs. You eat bad figs, you're going to get sick and you're going to die. So don't eat bad figs. Eat the good figs. But the good figs are coming from someone that I don't like. So? It's still good fruit. It, it's good fruit. So Jesus takes this picture and pulls it all the way forward to the Sermon on the Mount, saying, by your fruit, you know them. By their fruit, you know them. By their fruit, you know them. Turn over to Jeremiah 28. Just a couple of chapters. A particular false prophet comes to the front in Jeremiah 28, a guy named Hananiah. Jeremiah God instructed him to get a yoke. You know what a yoke is? A yoke is like a big wooden beam. Um, it has a big curve on it. You, you put an animal's head through it, and it pulls a plow. Uh, yokes are heavy and because they have to be stout, but it's all right because, I mean, you've got a, a cow that's pulling this thing. But Jeremiah's not a cow. Jeremiah's a dude, and he puts this yoke on, and he starts walking around. This is the yoke of judgment that is coming. For 70 years, he's saying, uh, Israel will carry this yoke. 70 years, because Babylon's going to come and carry them off for 70 years. That's like two and a half generations. He's walking around on this yoke, and he's telling uh, the people about the judgment that's coming. Hananiah comes onto the scene. In that same year, at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, remember that guy, fourth, or the fifth king? King of Judah, in the fifth month of the fourth year, Hananiah, the son of Azar, the prophet from Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord. For I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Picture this. This is like this, this, is like this prophetic battle royale. They're actually in the house of God, right? They're in the temple, and the people are all around. The priests are standing around, and most of the priests are crooked, by the way. Um, and they're standing there, and there's Jeremiah with this yoke on his neck, and Hananiah comes up, and Jeremiah is saying, 70 years of judgment, 70 years of judgment. Submit to God's yoke. Submit to this yoke. Hananiah comes up, and what does Hananiah say? How many years? Two. Two. Not only that, not only that, but where Jeremiah is saying, receive this, Hananiah is saying, it's broken. Babylon, Babylon's yoke is broken. Babylon, Babylon's done. Then the prophet Jeremiah, verse 5, spoke to Hananiah, the prophet, in the presence of the priests and all the people who were standing in the house of the Lord. The prophet Jeremiah said, 
Amen. (laughs) May the Lord do so. May the Lord make the words that you have prophesied come true and bring back to this place from Babylon the vessels of the house of the Lord and all the exiles. Yet hear now this word that I speak in your hearing and the hearing of all the people. The prophets who preceded you and me from ancient times prophesied war, famine, pestilence against many countries and great kingdoms. As for the prophet who prophesies peace, when the word of that prophet comes to pass, then it will be known that the Lord has truly sent the prophet. By your fruit, you know them. Right? By your fruit, you know them. Okay, I hear what you're saying. We'll see. Then the prophet Hananiah, this is a gutsy move, took the yoke from the neck of Jeremiah, the prophet, and broke them. And Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, Even so will I break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations within two years. But Jeremiah the prophet went his way. Notice, Jeremiah does not spar with this guy. Notice, Jeremiah does not get into an argument. Jeremiah knows, by the fruit, it will be known. Verse 12, sometime after the prophet Hananiah had broken the yoke bars from off the neck of Jeremiah the prophet, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, go tell Hananiah, thus says the Lord, you have broken wooden bars, but you have made in their place bars of iron. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put upon the neck of all these nations an iron yoke to serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they shall serve him, for I have given to him even the beasts of the field. And Jeremiah the prophet said to the prophet Hananiah, listen, Hananiah, The Lord has not sent you, and you have made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, says the Lord, behold, I will remove you from the face of the earth. This year you shall die, because you have uttered rebellion against the Lord. In that same year, in the seventh month, the prophet Hananiah died. By your fruit, you shall know them. Ah, Babylon's yoke is broken. Babylon's yoke is done. Everything's good. We'll see. Hananiah, you're a false prophet. You broke a wooden yoke. God has put an iron yoke on these nations that cannot be broken. This year you're going to die. He dies. By your fruit, you shall know them. By their fruit, you shall know them. This is what Jesus continually brings back into into the forefront, is that the nature of prophecy is not the way in which it's spoken. It's not even necessarily the content of the message. It is rather the fruit that results from it. And it's the fruit that is consistent with God himself. Hananiah's got a problem here. And Jeremiah points it out. Like, Hananiah, you realize that you're speaking against what generations and generations of people have been saying for a long time. You can't sin against the Lord like this and just walk away from it. It's not going to be easy. Look at our idolatry to this point. This yoke that is Babylon is coming against us. Ananias says, no, 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 everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. We'll see. We'll see. By your fruit, by their fruit, you shall know them. How do I know it is God? How do I know it is God? That's, what, that's a question a lot of people have. You know, like, uh, we, we talk here, like, so we're, we're Anabaptists at our core. We believe in, in that God still speaks to his people, right? that God still is communicating. And I hear this question all the time, like, how do I know if it's God or how do I know it's me? Right? How do I know if I'm hearing the Lord or if I ate bad pizza last night? 
You know, like, what, 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 what is this? What is this situation? Um, how do I know what to listen? Heck, how do you know to listen to me right now? Right? I mean, yeah, Jay's up there having a good time, and we'll be done soon. You know? Well, what do I do with that when I leave then? You know, like, how, how, do I know, how, how do I know it's God? Number one, John chapter 10. I told you this before. I'll tell you again. I'll tell you till my dying day. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are in his flock. My sheep, finish it, know my voice. How do I know it's God? You know. You know. Jesus said it. The whole dichotomy of is this God or is this me? Folks, that's a really high estimation of yourself. That's like, like, is this God or is this other spirit beings? I, I, that one I'm, I'm better with than is this God or is this me? Like, I, I know my voice. You know, my voice tells me, my voice tells me a lot of stupid stuff. Jay, go and speak this. Jay, go and do this. Jay, go and serve in this way. Jay, receive this. Walk in this. It, by your fruit, you know it. By, your, by its fruit, you know it. Folks, four questions. How do I know it's God? A, first off, you know. You know. I went to, my, uh, I went to a, a, a doctor once and, um, because I had, I don't remember what happened. I think we were playing ball on a Friday morning or something like that. I had hurt my foot. And, it, I mean, it really hurt. I never had a broken bone in my foot. Um, I have sprained uh, my ankle before, actually, many, many times. And... Um, I had this thing, and it just wouldn't go away. I, I figured it was a bad sprain, but I wanted to get it checked out. I'm getting older, and so, you know, like, I don't heal up as fast anymore or anything like that. So I go to the doctor, and I said, I, I, I am worried that I might have broken something. And he looked at me, and he said, well, did you break it? I was like, yeah, that's what I'm paying you all this money for. And he was like, he was like you, you actually probably know this. Like, you've been playing sports your whole life. Did you break your ankle or didn't you? I was like, no, I didn't break my ankle. I sprained it. He's like, so do you want to spend 400 bucks on an x-ray or not? Put your leg up every day. Ice it, 20 on, 20 off. I do that. Yet you're getting older. It'll be a little bit longer. In two weeks, you, you should be okay. You know what happened? In two weeks, I was fine. And dude saved me 400 bucks. God bless him. Do you, is, it, is it God? Is it God? If it's God, then follow. You know his voice. You know how he speaks to you. If you don't know his voice, get to know it. It's awesome. And sometimes it's really hard. But no matter what, it's always God. Like, where else would you rather be? Would you rather be plugged into the matrix, having a nice meal, knowing that you're amounting to nothing? Or would you rather eat some stuff that does not taste good, but that gets you by and be free and helps other people be set free by what it is that you do in the great spiritual battle, right? I mean, it's, it's like by, by your fruit, you know it. Number one, uh, you know it. <laughs> Number two, is it in line with God's government? See, that's the problem with Hananiah's declaration. Hey, Hananiah's declaration is not in line with God's government, Right? Idolatry, 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 idolatry. Revival, idolatry, 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 idolatry. 
This is God's government. What does all that idolatry bring? It brings judgment. What have all the prophets been saying up until this point? Exile. What did God say in Deuteronomy chapter 30? Choose life. Don't choose death. If you choose death, I will dismiss you from the land that I have given you. Is it in line with God's government? Hananiah saying, ah, it's not that big a deal. Two years, we'll be good. No, it's not. That's not in line with God's government. It does not align with the way that God does things. Number two. I'm sorry, that was number two. Number three. Is it in line with God's economy? Is it in line with God's economy? In other words, is it in line with the way that God engages things? Is it in line with the way that, that he is moving? Talk about this in a little bit. Number three, or number four, I'm sorry. Is it in line with God's heart? Is it in line with God's heart? But God doesn't want to see me under judgment. Are you sure? Because I'm positive that God loves you. And I'm also positive that he wants to separate all the stuff in you that's not him. And that process is, is judgment. It's the separation concept. God is not your therapist. He's not there to make you feel better about you. God is not your biggest cheerleader. God is an ever-present father, husband, shepherd, builder, like deeply, intimately attuned, not to you as a project, but to the relationship itself. Is the word in line with God's heart? Lastly, is the word in line with God's word? I mean, you've got an incredible tool <laughs> sitting right there in your hands, be it a book or your phone, to actually know what God's mind is. Asking, like, do I follow the Spirit or do I follow God's word is like saying, which wing on an airplane do you not want? Like these two things go together. Be a person of the word. In application and conclusion, think about this like this, right? Some contemporary prophetic falsehoods. Let's think about some false prophecy and how that might affect us in, uh, in today's environment. I get around a lot to a lot of different churches, and this is some themes that I hear along the way that I would suggest to you are falsely prophetic, false prophetic words. Right? Number one, God's got this. God's got this. I hear this a lot um, from uh, people who are points of decision. So here's a decision, and I've got to go one way or the other. Which way I go doesn't really matter in the long run, because God's got this. Right? God's got this. Folks, your disobedience matters. Your disobedience does carry consequence with it. So when we say that God's got this, and sort of like uh, everything's going to be all right, no, everything won't necessarily be all right. Everything is not all right in Jeremiah. Everything is not all right in Daniel. Everything is not all right in Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Everything is not all right in the Gospels. Everything is not all right in the Epistles. Everything is definitely not all right in Revelation. You can definitely see that the whole, like, God's got this thing is this therapeutic concept. That makes me feel good to know that my decisions, one way or the other, it's all right. God's going to figure it out in the long run. I'm not pushing back against grace. I believe in grace. I also believe that judgment is grace. 
And I also, I mean, this is, this is basic parenting 101, which is just sort of like letting their kid, your kids feel the consequences of their choices is an important thing to do if you love them, right? I mean, sometimes the greatest discipline in the world is just simply to let what they chose happen. And that hurts and you don't want it. But what's there? I mean, think about your, from, from a kid's standpoint. Do you want your kid walking around going, mom and dad's got this. It doesn't really matter what I do in this situation. Good, bad, it's bad, but mom, mom, mom or dad's got it. Well, we're going to raise parent-dependent kids who are not ready to go leave <laughs> and be who it is that God meant them to be. All right, God's got this. I would suggest that's a falsely prophetic statement. Number two, we just need to be faithful. I hear this from churches a lot. God's just calling us to be faithful. Most of the time, this is an excuse for mediocrity. Well, we're just gonna, we, we, just need to, we just need to be fair. We just keep, keep doing what we're doing, and we've been doing it for a while. It's going to be all right. God's honored us to this point. Well, maybe, or you just figured out how to make it work. This idea of we just need to be faithful is a false definition. Look at the word faithful. What two words do you see in it? Faith and full. Now switch them. That's what it means to be faithful. To be faithful is to be full of faith. To be faithful doesn't mean we just need to keep doing what we're doing. Eventually, it'll come around for us. To be faithful means, God, what do you have for us? What courageous exploit do you have for me today that I cannot see, but that I am going to follow you in? Now, that's faithfulness. What's the opposite of faith? Nope. I think it's doubt. I would suggest doubt's the other side of the coin. Different sermon. We walk by faith, not by, ah, sight is the opposite of faith. If you can see it, what faith do you need in it? Faith comes by hearing. Ah, there we go. Now that's something. God, what do you have for me? I want you to walk up to that person and lay hands on them and declare healing in Jesus' name in the middle of Lebanon Farmer's Market on a Saturday morning. No thanks. But I, however, God, I will be faithful. I'll go home and pray for them. Right? This is a false prophetic statement. We just need to be faithful. I encourage you to call anybody that you hear say this. This is a big one today. Call them on it. Just rewrite that definition for them. That's Jeremiah prophetic ministry. Yeah, good. All right. Think positively about yourself. Think positively about yourself. Folks are, you folks are possibly saying, Jay, you tell us all the time like to think of myself as a son, like, to think of myself as loved by God. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Definitely, you should do those things. I am passionate about my kids, and I am passionate about my wife. Right? There, there is no other people in the world that I love more. But if all I ever do is think positively about them, that's not passion. That's positive thinking, sure. But believing something is going to be better does not mean that it will get there. We have two kids with cystic fibrosis. Do you honestly want me to think positively about that? Right? How do you want me to think about it? What prophetic word would you have for me? in my place of deepest pain. Are you really just going to sit there and tell me it'll be all right? 
or keep your chin up. God, God loves them. He's got it. I appreciate the sentiment. However, I want a whole lot more than that from him, right? I look around this room and I see people that I know and love and I see the pain and experiences and history in your lives and the places where you come from. You want more than a positive, keep your chin up, it'll be okay. Right? Think, think positively. No. Think with God. Think with God about who you are and where you are and what you're experiencing. That may come with a massive amount of compassion and uplifting goodness. It also might mean that you are in the trenches with David in Psalm 13 going, goodness gracious, where are you? Don't you know how much this hurts? That is not positive thinking. That is redemptive thinking. Number four, Gnosticism. By far the biggest one. Absolutely, across the board, we are experiencing a massive resurgence in in Gnosticism that says that spirit is good and physical is bad. If you have a bulletin, take it out. Can, Can I borrow yours, Jake? Thanks. On the announcement side, bottom right corner, we are seven grand behind budget four weeks into the year. <laughs> right? Whose problem is this? Does God got this? Are we supposed to think positively about this? Right? How does Gnosticism enter into these? This is as practical as we get here at Cornerstone. Right? Money, budget, right? Uh, 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 honoring our staff with their paychecks, taking care of our building, those kinds of things. Gnosticism says this. God's got this. It's all good. It's good. It's all good. He's taking care of us before he'll take care of us again. Folks, I believe that. I, I, I absolutely believe that. And I'm not coming against any of that at all. But oftentimes, I think that we look at this kind of stuff, and the more practical, the more real our Gnosticism becomes. When we look at this and we go, well, the church is a spiritual entity, And so, like, God will just, like, he'll bring in the money. But we all come together at covenant member meetings every six weeks, six, eight weeks or so, and we all together stand together and say that we're going to steward our resources, giving faithfully to the work of the church, capital C, which includes Cornerstone, of course. And so it's very easy for us in this kind of a situation to be like, God's going to take care of it. God's going to take care of it, right? And we'll just, we'll put that on the spirit side of things. When in actuality, we've all spoken a covenant together that says actually that we're going to take care of it. That's a very practical side of things, right? Where it's actual like life. It's, it's very, very easy for us to think of spirit and goodness and life. And this is why we like to come to church. So I like to come to Cornerstone, I think. You know, we get to experience the presence. We have wonderful worship leaders who help us experience God on mystical ways and levels. We hear good teaching from week to week. We experience God in that way. And here we are all together in this place. And then I go to work on Tuesday morning. And my Gnosticism kicks in where spirit was good there, and now the physical, actual embodiment of that gospel in real time happens when I sit there and I think about the fact that I feel purposeless every time I come here and I just need to make it through this day again. And if I keep doing that for 25 more years, then I can retire and be happy. That's Gnosticism. 
is also Gnosticism that goes to work on Tuesday morning and that is with our coworkers. And we've been saying to other people around, around us in our small group or our, our families or whatever, pray for Joe. Joe's a guy that I work with. Right? And so I've been praying for Joe. And I'm, I'm all spiritual about Joe. I've been praying for Joe for eight stinking years. And he still doesn't know that I'm a Christian. This is Gnosticism. At what point are you going to tell Joe that Jesus loves him? At what point are you going to take this spirit concept that we all get all hopped up and fun with on Sunday mornings and actually put it into life with Joe? Joe, let's, can I pray for you? Like, instead of praying for him away from him, pray for him with him. And bring these two things together, embodiment, engagement. Gnosticism is, is, is just rampant. It's rampant where we're keeping everything compartmentalized. Where spirit's over there and, here's, and, and physical's over here. Let me bring this full circle to our vision and mission. What's intercession? Everybody. Spirit becoming reality. What's the incarnation? Jesus, God, becoming human flesh. What's communion that we're about to experience? Spirit symbol activated in what? What's the metaphor for the day? Food. Strongest prophetic statement today that is false prophecy is that spirit matters more than embodiment does. Is that you can be a spiritual person and not have it affect your life in a real way that actually changes you. Things like your checkbook. Those deeply practical places co-worker who scoffs at religion every day, but you know God wants you to talk to. Those kinds of embodiments. That, that's the kind of false prophecy that we deal with in our day. Would that we had it as simple as Jeremiah did. And yes, I understand what I'm saying when I say that. Today's religious culture is convoluted and messed up on every level. And it's not that Christianity has gotten it right. We, we are a church that deeply needs true prophetic word, that deeply needs God's word of alignment and reforming to come and to find us and to engage us for who we really are. We have made him something that he is not, and we have perverted his church to become something that it should not be. And we must return. And to whatever degree we as a church feel exilic, is something that is worth pursuing and actually embracing to see what it is that God has for us in that place as we return as a remnant to the land and rebuild his temple. I believe that's what God's doing in this day. I believe he wants a generation who's going to start that and begin that and generationally impart that to our kids who can further that work. But we will only get there through his true word, not through false prophetic statements that make us feel good about something that we are or are not, but rather together coming as the broken people of God to the only place that we can go, which is God himself. And that's the beauty of what we're going to do now. As we take the bread and the cup, you will hear this is true food, this is true drink. Jesus calls us to come and to consume Absolutely to consume, but not church. We consume him. I am the bread of life. 
I am the water. I am that which you most deeply need. I am that which without you cannot make it. And his word, no matter how difficult or hard it is for us to receive, no matter what level of judgment or grace there might be in it, it is the truest word because he is our shepherd and he protects us from the wolves. He protects us from the false statements, the, 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 the wrongness, the untruth. But there's only one plumb line, and it's him himself. There's only one place that we can be rooted and grounded, and it's on Christ. I don't have the answers. But we don't have the answers. What we do have is God himself. And as we receive what it is that he's bringing to us, as we receive what it is, what we actually remember when we go to the table is the fact that he took all the judgment on him. And so we do not receive the recompense for our sin. He did. He did. We still walk in the consequences of our choices. But the punishment of sin that is death the punishment of sin that is eternal judgment, that is eternal separation, is something that Jesus took upon himself. And that's what we remember today. That's why a hard prophetic word that is the truth of God delivered to his people is a truth that you and I can receive with life and goodness because it comes from the one who loves us and gave himself for us. So that as we, his people, come together and now eat and drink and embody his gospel again. We declare the truest prophetic word, which is that Jesus loves us. And in the places of our brokenness and our false prophecies and our true prophecies and our, and, and our misunderstandings of grace and our judgments toward one another and in the midst of our sin and brokenness and the way that affects us in our lives, we together come and receive healing again and forgiveness again. And we come again to this prophetic word, this prophetic demonstration that is the bread and the cup that says that when all other words fail, if everything Jay just said is just full of crap, this is a true word. That this is what matters. It's Christ himself embodied in our midst. Communion is the anti-Gnosticism where spirit becomes fully embodied and we partake together as the people of God unified in that declaration. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words whose voice is not heard Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from his heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, and they are righteous altogether. 
More to be desired are they than gold, even than very fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. Lord, thank you for your judgments. Thank you for the separating work that you are doing in each of us and in your body, in your church, in your people. The separation of the things that define us away from who we are, truly in you, away from the true freedom and the realities that we have in Christ. God, we invite your separating work within us. Like David, we say, come, search us, know us, see what is in us, and lead us in the way that is everlasting into your truth, God, into your awareness, into your fullness, most of all, God, into the love, the grace, the goodness, the heart, the, the beauty, the wonder of what it is that we have in you. So many idols, God, so many lesser loves that your people can be drawn to. God, keep us focused, stayed on you. And do what you have to do, God, to draw us back to you. Thank you, Lord, for the work that you are doing in our midst. Thank you, Lord, for the work that you have been about. And just like Jesus, we don't want to do anything that we don't see you doing. We don't want to say anything that we don't hear you saying. God, make us people who are after you and only you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.